This is an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. At the start of a new week, seven more states took a step today toward emerging from their coronavirus closures. Now 32 states have lifted at least some restrictions. In more than half, the number of coronavirus cases is increasing. Dr. John Brownstein is an epidemiologist at Boston Children's Hospital and an ABC News contributor. What's going on here? So clearly the efforts by some of these states to reopen are not based on the data that we're seeing from public health. There are cases going up. We have not fully slowed down the transmission dynamics in these communities. Yet what we're seeing is sort of the pressure mounting to open up businesses. But unfortunately, what that's going to mean is that's going to undo all the amazing work that population has done around social distancing over the last couple months, uh, because now we're going to just see increased cases, hospitalizations, deaths. It's going to become clear. But unfortunately, what we know now is that the efforts that we do today will only be shown uh, in two weeks. So social distancing we do now means we reduce hospitalizations two weeks from now. If we start to relax today, two weeks from now is where we're going to see the real impact. And it's unfortunate because it's not this direct cause and effect. And um, we're going to see increased cases. We're already seeing cases starting to mount in places like Georgia and like Texas. Uh, And that's not surprising from a public health perspective. You can't keep all these states locked down forever. How should you go about this then to make sure that you're not increasing the case numbers exponentially with just bowing to the pressure to open up. Right. So we have to be very thoughtful in the places that we start to ease restrictions. Clearly, uh, there are types of activities that are uh, that result in less aggregation, but there are definitely ones that you can't maintain social distancing, right? So places like tattoo parlors and hairdressing, places where you need close proximity in order to, to, to actually provide the service, those probably wouldn't be the first places you would think to start opening up. There are other types of activities, of course, that promote less sort of aggregation, especially if you think about offices where you can have you know more rotation and, and, and maintain some distance. You could start to ease things up sort of incrementally, see what that impacts in terms of cases, and then start rolling out uh, more social distance, uh, less social distancing. Uh, the White House, in fact, has released uh, guidelines around sort of gating criteria of what you might want to see before you start to open things up, you know, in terms of reductions in cases, in terms of reduction on the impact of health systems, increased testing. But somehow those definitions are not being applied in many communities around the country. How will communities know if they're doing it right? The, the reality is that, you know, we've come this far and really been attempting to focus our efforts around evidence. So let's not lose sight of that. And I know it's, it's a long time for a lot of people, but, you know, we need to be thoughtful about how we move to the next phases. And we will get there, but we need to be you know, driven by the data that is being that is coming through and not by sort of the politics or pressures of, of, of reopening. Dr. John Brownstein at Boston Children's Hospital. The burden of these restrictions is carried by all of us, a broad swath of society. And these days, in particular, by the graduating class of 2020, college seniors seeking to enter the workforce who now find themselves with uncertain prospects. Bailey Johnson joins us from Raleigh, North Carolina. She's living at home with her parents. She should be attending a commencement ceremony this weekend at NC State. But that, like everything else, has been called off because of coronavirus. 
Bailey, make sure I have this right. You're a textile design major and a minor in forensic science? Yeah. Shrouds for the deceased? What are you doing? (laughs) No, I actually want to design lingerie for a living. Gotcha. So what was your plan for working with this unique major before all this hit? Um, I was planning on looking for fashion jobs in like New York City or Italy. Um, I was considering going back to school for uh, like embroidery or just different like textile based uh, graduate programs. But all of those graduate programs are on pause right now. I was also considering joining the Peace Corps. Oh, wow. I'm just applying to all the jobs and hoping for the best. Are you getting any response from anyone? I got one response. Um, I'm still in like the interview process right now, but it's like a remote job. I bet you didn't anticipate it being this hard. No, I, I didn't. I mean, I was expecting even before the coronavirus... I was expecting it to be harder to find a job because my my industry is so competitive, but it's even harder now. Do you have a sense of prospects or or, or when or you might hear? I guess, and the Peace Corps is the, the fallback. Yeah, the Peace Corps is the fallback. I should hear back from them in June. But for jobs in general, I'm very optimistic about all of it. I feel like I'll get the responses when... Everything is starting to open up again, and people are looking for jobs. And until then, I'll be working at my car wash. Is that what you're doing? Yep, that's what I'm currently doing. I'm living with my parents and working at a car wash. What a stressful time this normally is for graduating seniors anyway. And now you have this. Yep, there's not much we can do about it, but we have to stay positive and optimistic about all of it. I mean, the class of 2020 is forever going to be known as the coronavirus class. Yeah, (laughs) it is, sadly. Bailey Johnson of Raleigh, North Carolina, soon to be a graduate of NC State. Every night at 7 p.m., New York applauds healthcare workers. The city's newest heroes are enduring tremendous stress, PTSD, and burnout because of an unyielding virus. To address this, Mount Sinai is starting a new program that's similar to what the hospital system did after 9-11 with firefighters and police officers who responded to the World Trade Center. Dr. Dennis Charney, dean of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, is with us. Being feted by the city every night is not enough for these doctors and nurses, is it? No, it is not enough. Uh, We need to take care of them uh, because they're under enormous stress in taking care of very sick patients. Unfortunately, some are dying right in their hands. And they also are at risk themselves for contacting the virus and getting sick. How concerned are you about PTSD and burnout? Uh, We are very concerned because we think the degree of stress that our frontline healthcare workers are under is comparable to the first responders to the World Trade Center disaster and in many ways uh, equal to what soldiers experienced in wars like the Vietnam War. And when you look at it from that point of view, we think the rate of post-traumatic stress and related conditions will be high in our frontline workers, perhaps up to 20%. I mean, that's simply stunning. But I I mean, but they are confronted with so much death. Yes. When when you think of it, it's in a way it's personal. Uh, You know, first, because the patients are infected, that our, our frontline workers need to put on very uncomfortable 
protective equipment. Secondly, because of the infection, we have not permitted visitors so that our, our frontline workers are alone, essentially, uh, with very seriously ill patients. And uh, the death rate, particularly when the patients go on ventilators, is quite high. So they're confronted with grief, uh, serious illness, risk to themselves. You know, that's a recipe you know, for having issues like post-traumatic stress disorder for themselves. Mount Sinai certainly has plenty of, of experience dealing with first responders after 9-11. What is the new initiative now to deal with uh, the potential, uh, as you talk about it, in, in frontline healthcare workers? Yeah, you're right around the, regarding the World Trade Center first initial responders. We're still taking care of them you know, almost 20 years later. So we have a lot of experience. Uh, because of that, we have created a new center, which we're calling the Center for Stress, Resilience, and Personal Growth. And the reason we are, are doing all three is because uh, first we want to take care of the stress responses to help prevent or mitigate the development of post-traumatic stress. We want to enhance resilience in our healthcare workers so that when they're faced with difficulty going forward, they are prepared. And thirdly, because many people, after they have faced serious stress, become stronger. They experience personal growth. And, and we want to facilitate that in our frontline healthcare workers. Dr. Dennis Charney at Mount Sinai. The program should be fully up and running in about a month. Our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jennifer Ashton's coming up. I'm Aaron Katursky. You're listening to an ABC News special. This ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know, continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent, Amy Robach. With me now is ABC Chief Medical Correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, with the warmer weather and many states reopening, there are some important issues to consider for everyone. So let's start with what we know has to happen as we start this reopening process. Well, first, according to top infectious disease specialists and epidemiologists, there's some reality here. The virus is not going anywhere. So it didn't magically disappear when we were on lockdown. We have to learn how to live with it. The other thing is, if you look at the gating criteria, remember, before any state or region considered opening, they needed to show two weeks of sustained downward trend in cases, which may or may not have happened yet. And again, before we go to reopen, whatever that looks like, we have to be able to track and identify new cases. And in order to do that, we need good testing procedures in place. Right. So despite what you just said, there are still <laughs> states that are reopening in areas like Utah and Texas right. are still seeing their cases go up. So what are the potential risks of opening too soon? Well, I think we have to take a view right down the middle here, Amy, and understand that as we reopen, the risks, of course, are people's lives and health at stake and the cases going up. If that happens, the healthcare system, obviously our hospitals could be massively overwhelmed. There could be this phenomenon known as the case cliff, where if people do get sick, the hospitals are overburdened and will not be able to adequately treat those patients who could be saved. And then if you listen to top epidemiologists, remember flattening the curve? Yep. There's a theory that if we need to backtrack and flatten that curve again, it might take us more effort and we might not get it down as low as where we started. So 
more effort for less result, basically. Dr. Jen Ashton, you'll be back with us later in the show. Thank you. Well, today, Missouri, the show me state is back in business as reopening begins. But a stay at home order continues in the state's biggest city here to talk about his plan to reopen is Kansas City Mayor Quentin Lucas. And Mayor, thank you so much for being with us. Explain for us how your 1010 rule for reopening Kansas City differs from the governor's plan for your state. Well, you know, one of the things that we saw from the governor's plan was that it, it largely just kind of let us flip the switch. They had a few limits, but all was left to the cities and counties in terms of what we needed to do. And in my state, like a lot of states in middle America, uh, the cities are very different than smaller communities. So our plan looks to the fact that we have density, looks to the fact that we want to avoid crowds, and more than anything, looks to the fact that we want to responsibly reopen. We don't want to just flip the switch so that we see a rapid increase in cases. So how did you decide on 10 percent or 10 people? So the 10 percent idea was the fact that we wanted to actually kind of ratchet it up bit by bit. So rather than saying, hey, everybody, every bowling alley or concert venue or bar is open, we wanted to say, how is it that we can look to those areas where crowds may congregate, but we could actually keep people from like filling it up too much? So, for example, even at some of our larger retail establishments, you don't want hundreds of people there because usually they'll crowd near certain spots, check out, et cetera. So we said 10 percent is a good, reasonable level. It'll give us time to measure our testing and our tracing, and then we can see after we hit 10% for a number of weeks, then perhaps going to 25%, going to 50%. But it allows us to really use data. Uh, Too much right now is kind of about the politics of reopening. Some people arguing for freedom, others saying we should stay closed forever. I realize that since I'm in a red state in the the middle of the country, reopening is going to be reality, but we thought we could give a template not just to our city, but a number of others that speaks to how you can reopen, but use data to see how we ratchet up eventually how our economy is open again. Curious how you see any enforcement issues that may arise. Do you you foresee any complications uh, with this plan from the businesses themselves or your residents, the patrons of those businesses? So, you know, by and large, I don't, right? We have seen amazing compliance throughout the country in connection with stay-at-home orders, which were certainly more extreme. Um, People want to be back out again. I hear that. But people also want to be safe. And regardless of political background or even age, I've seen lots of Kansas Cityans that have said, no, we actually like the fact that we're taking some steps to how we actually reopen. Some have concerns that some of the states around us have really opened quite quickly. And so largely it's voluntary compliance to the extent that there is non-compliance by certain businesses. We don't knock on a door like Big Brother. Instead, usually it's just the health department calling. And then ultimately, we will kind of ratchet up what the enforcement looks like. But for us, it's more about giving people some sort of guidance so that they can re-enter society, but re-enter society safely, not around a lot of people all of a sudden, and certainly making sure that you really give those tools for maintaining social distance. It's one thing to say six feet, but we've seen even in parks in New York City or elsewhere the fact that it's still kind of hard to have that distance. I think our capacity rules, 10-10-10, really gives us that opportunity. Mayor Quentin Lucas, thank you so much for your time today. We certainly appreciate it. And 
and that was musical artist Livingston's new single, Say the Word, inspired by the Together Without Hunger initiative by Panera Bread to provide meals to those in need during the COVID-19 pandemic. And here to tell us more about this very important campaign is Panera CEO Niran Chaudhry. Thank you for being with us. And I want you to tell us all about Panera's partnership right now with Feeding America. What are you all doing? Yeah, you know, this... Uh health crisis is fast becoming a financial and a humanitarian crisis. 55 million Americans will suffer from hunger and 20% of the food banks may run out of food in the next four or five weeks and we just can't accept that. We need to all step up and and help in any way possible. Uh, So we've uh, partnered with Feeding America and launched this campaign called Together Without Hunger and uh, we would love to serve up to half a million meals to children and families most impacted by the pandemic through Feeding America. And to raise awareness uh, and generate uh, donations, we have created a challenge called See a Plate, Fill a Plate. And essentially, we would love for people to donate at least $3 by going to togetherwithouthunger.org, take an empty plate, decorate it, take a selfie, tag five friends, and spread the movement so that we can all come together and fight hunger. As states begin to reopen, what are you going to do in terms of your service? Are you going to resume dine-in service? And tell us how you're currently keeping patrons and employees safe while still serving. Yeah, I think we're going to follow all the federal state guidelines, of course, but we have developed our own guidelines as well to ensure the ongoing safety of our associates and customers. And that is the most important thing that we need to take care of. So we're going to be, uh, you know, uh, we, we had actually kept almost 85 to 90 percent of our cafes open even through the crisis, but mostly through off-premise access. But now as we begin to reopen, we'll reopen the dine-ins in phases and be very mindful of ensuring safety and do it in a very controlled fashion. So we're working through a series of steps like wellness stations to take the temperature of our employees, plexiglass glass barriers for our cashiers social distancing protocols in the dining areas, frequent sanitation and hygiene protocols, and so on. Uh, So so really uh, working through it to ensure that the safety is not compromised in any way. How many of your employees have your stores and franchise locations had to furlough, and how are you helping those employees? You know, it's been uh, a major disruption to the business, uh, uh, and I think we've had to unfortunately furlough employees across the franchise and the company cafes. But I think at times like this, it is so important that we do so uh, with the utmost amount of compassion and care and respect for our associates uh, during the time that they followed and hopefully work very, very hard to get them back in as soon as we can. So we're doing a, a series of things, for example, an emergency relief fund to help our associates, including followed associates, for uh, any near time urgent help that they might need. Uh, providing free family meals once a week to all of our associates, including followed associates. And then we also partnered with uh, brands like CVS and Walmart, who, you know, fortunately are hiring at this time uh, to ensure that there is a frictionless uh, opportunity for our associates to get hired uh, with them. And then they can come back to us uh, once we're ready. Well, thank you for all that you're doing for your community and for your employees as well. And we certainly wish you the best. Thank you, Noreen Chaudhry, for being with us today. We appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Coming up next, when we come back, Dr. Jen Ashton is here with the answer to a number of questions. And then despite the tens of millions of jobs lost in the pandemic, some companies are hiring. ABC Business correspondent Deirdre Bolton joins us with that next. 
This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. And our Dr. Jen Ashton is here for a new round of your questions about the coronavirus. Dr. Jen, thanks for being with us. And first question, this is a very interesting one. My husband and I are both first responders. He tested positive for COVID-19 in March, and I tested negative twice. I was tested for antibodies, and those results were negative as well. Does this mean I've never had the virus? Could I still get the virus? So much to unpack here, Amy. It does mean, allegedly, that this person has not yet been infected, which is unusual because we know that the rate of household transmission, let's say between spouses, is very, very high. And remember, antibody testing is really not meant to diagnose active infection. It's to see if you've been exposed in the past. So while it's unusual to have this scenario between, let's say, husband and wife, um, it definitely can happen. And yes, that person is still susceptible to becoming infected. Okay, important for her to know. Uh, Next question. Are the people testing positive for COVID-19 now mainly essential workers or are there people testing positive who are mainly quarantined with the occasional trip to the grocery store? Isn't this important data? Yeah, I'm really interested in this one. It is important data. But remember, when you're talking about contact and exposure, yes, the greater your contact, the closer proximity, the longer duration, absolutely that increases risk. But as we say in medicine, it only takes one. So yes, that one trip to the grocery store potentially is enough if you encounter someone who's infected. Mm. All right. Next question. Have there been any reports of the virus causing pain in your ears? Not yet reported in peer review literature. However, here are the big caveats. We have read reports about a loss of smell and taste, which are central nervous system symptoms associated with COVID-19. Some ear pain could be caused by acute infection, but it could also be a neurologic manifestation. So can people get respiratory congestion occasionally with COVID? Yes. Can people get also neurologic manifestations? Yes. Ear pain, not yet really widely reported in the medical literature, but we're we're watching everything. Yeah, I'm really interested to hear your answer to this next question because states are starting to reopen. And so the next question, as gyms start to reopen and owners pledge to deep clean them, should we be wearing masks if we go to work out? The official answer to this, Amy, has to be yes. And you and I are both fitness fanatics, but as much as we want to get back into the gym, those are areas of high density population. So you are wearing a mask to protect others. And then all of those contact hotspots need to be aggressively cleaned with more frequency um, and, and more diligence. So I think that how gyms and fitness clubs start to do that is going to have to be probably a little more rigorous than other parts of the, you know, our society. It is tough open. to be you know, breathing deeply Uh with the mask on. Oh, yeah. Not so much fun. No, it isn't. All right. (laughs) Dr. Jen, thank you very much. And you could submit questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Well, since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, many companies were forced to lay off or furlough their employees. But there are some industries on the front lines that are actually ramping up hiring and increasing their job openings during this time. So here to tell us who is hiring and where job seekers should be looking is business correspondent Deirdre Bolton. Deirdre, thanks for being with us. So tell us which industries are hiring now. 
So we can put them in two categories. We can say on location or remote. So on location is in response to the way that we're all behaving differently. We shop differently. So Amazon, I think, is one of the best examples of that, saying in March they plan to hire 100,000 workers just for their warehouses alone. So those are the kinds of jobs that I'm seeing a lot of demand for. So warehouse work, loading and unloading trucks. More people are not going to restaurants, they're shopping. So groceries, they need more inventory. All of those people willing to drive trucks. If you have a commercial license, there's a lot of demand for that. And if you can help stock or unstock, load a truck, unload a truck, that is in great demand. Grocery workers, cashiers, any of these places that have been deemed essential businesses are looking for people physically in their stores. Now, there's the other category, which is more remote. And that is for people, for example, who are willing to do phone work, customer service. There are tons of questions going into insurance companies, for example. There are also opportunities if you have an expertise in tax, tax law. If you have a legal degree, a law degree, there is a great demand for that. There's a lot of businesses who are trying to just navigate this whole SBA program, the Small Business Association program. They have a lot of questions. So if you have any of those expertises or software engineers, more and more people are working from home. Those, Amy, are in great demand right now. So two categories on location and remote. Yeah. And I'm curious, too, because obviously this is a medical crisis. So what about healthcare job openings? There's this bifurcation, if you like. So if you are someone who is able to work at any step in the process to help fight covid there is tons of demand out there. As we know, our heroes who are working in hospitals right now, some have had to go home, have had to self-isolate. Some people don't have childcare, for example, with schools closed. There are a lot of nurses at our home. So if you have been trained and you can, for your own health reasons or family reasons, support the fight against COVID directly, there are numerous opportunities. The trick is for healthcare workers who cannot be around uh, coronavirus, who for medical reasons, personal reasons cannot be part of that ecosystem right now. A lot of them have chosen to be sidelined. And then there's a smaller story, which is actually just as important, I think, which is that some hospitals, especially regional ones, are actually losing money Mm. as more people forego elective surgeries the non-COVID healthcare providers actually have been benched or are at risk of being laid off, Amy. Wow. And, you know, for the millions of people who are out there looking for a job right now, what general tips can you give them? I would say just beware, especially with these work from home or remote job offers, just be very, very careful. Just on an anecdotal survey, I think three to five percent, if you just go on a general website, are actually legit. There are a lot of scammers out there. So never, ever, ever give your Social Security number or your date of birth early on in the process. Do not go and work for a company that has not gotten back to you or checked your references. These may seem like obvious red flags, but sometimes this is a very stressful time for a lot of people. There are a lot of people who are trying to find a couple extra ways to to make some money. If there are anything that say like unlimited earnings opportunity, any kind of language like that, 
you just really want to be careful, do your research. There is the Better Business Bureau, so you can Google the company's name with that, or even the FTC, Federal Trade Commission. Just make sure that that business is listed before you go further and give any kind of personal information, Amy. Yeah, always do your hum- homework. Such good advice. Dear to Bolton, yeah. thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Sure. And coming up next right here on What You Need to Know, the big news about an old favorite treat, Girl Scout cookies. This ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know, continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Every day, every hour, things are moving, changing so fast. And that's why we're here for you. The answers you need, the information you want, we will get through this together. Our next guest is here to make everyone's quarantine a little bit brighter. Names like Thin Mints and Tagalongs might spark a smile in many homes. And the Girl Scouts recently announced... It is going to now sell their cookies online. Joining us is Girl Scouts of the the USA CEO, Sylvia Acevedo. Sylvia, thank you so much for being with us. And I know the Girl Scouts have been around for 108 years. Tell us about your response to COVID-19. Hi, thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Well, you know, um, I realized very quickly that we had to do something um, because of the disease. And so what I wanted to make sure we did with our girls is really started to make sure that we had girl safety first and foremost. So what we did is we made sure that girls uh, would have virtual sales online. And within nine days, we created a great national online system, Cookie Care. So if you can go to girlscouts.org, you can still get those great, delicious Mm -hmm. cookies. Um, What's wonderful is they can be a treat to first responders or an indulgence for yourself as well. It's also been fantastic to see how the girls have created their virtual online uh, stores or cookie booths. It's just been amazing to see. That is incredible because you did have to make some changes in order to ensure the success of this digital movement, correct? And of course, I love your initiative to give back through it all as well. You're absolutely right. So, you're, you know, um, cookies, um, our wonderful cookie program, women and girls organizations tend to get less than 9% of all philanthropic funding. That was true 100 years ago, and it's true today. And so the cookie program, all those proceeds stay local to fund those great community efforts in your, in your local area. So we realized we needed to do something different, So, which is why we created Cookie Care. What's been so fantastic to see is just the innovative ways that girls have continued to give back to the first responders, to truckers in New Mexico, in Ohio. There they have stations where Girl Scout cookies are there. And what's also wonderful is for those first responders, this is a great way to say thank you to those people who are risking their lives. They get that cookie, and you know the um, the Girl Scout cookie, it's an American icon. It's emblematic of so much. It says somebody cares about you. Somebody is grateful for what you are doing. And there are so many stories of girls who had delivered to hospital 
And the workers were just so excited <laughs> that somebody had remembered them at this very difficult time. That's great. That's great. And I know the girls can't physically all be together, but the troops are meeting online. You're right. The other thing we realized is girls still needed in this very uncertain time to feel connected and to be part of something bigger than themselves, which is Girl Scouting. We also knew they didn't need more school. And so how did we make sure that our virtual programming that we did in, again, less than two weeks, put everything online, that the girls could still be skill building, but be engaged with one another, having fun. What I love is like in Memphis, Tennessee, the way the girls are showing what they're doing is they're creating yard signs so they can say, hey, mm. I made a robot or I created a friendship bracelet or I learned about the stars or the great outdoors. So we've managed to be able to keep Girl Scouting alive, active and relevant for our girls. That's right. You got a little creative, but you stay connected and you're giving back. It's it's a win, win, win. Sylvia, thanks so much for being with us. We certainly appreciate your time. Oh, you bet. Thank you very much. And if you want to purchase Girl Scout cookies online, well, you can head straight to girlscouts.org. And we turn now to Dr. Jen Ashton for her final thoughts. Amy, today I think the focus really is about how we can come together, work together, protect people's health, and not have any kind of reopening, especially as we get into the summer, divide us. When health and people's lives are at stake, it is more important than ever to just recognize the fears, recognize the uncertainties, be able to integrate new information as we learn it and understand that in the three options of staying home indefinitely, which is not really an option, especially if you're talking about one to two years, completely ripping the Band-Aid off and let the virus tear through the country, um, sickening and killing a lot of people or taking a middle ground, that middle ground is really the sweet spot. And so from a medical standpoint, from a public health standpoint, that's really where I think the focus needs to be because we're already seeing a lot of heated emotions, which is understandable, but right. we, we need to keep it pretty Baby steps. Yeah, baby steps. But steps forward, hopefully. Hopefully, All exactly. Right. Dr. <laughs> Jen, thank you so you much. Bet. When we come back, the new book, Offering Children and Parents a Helping Hand when it comes to explaining the coronavirus. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. You know, it's tough enough for adults to cope with the many changes in our lives due to the pandemic. But just imagine how unsettling this is for children. Well, now there is a new book just released directly aimed at helping parents talk to their kids about what's happening. It's called Anna and the Germ that Came to Visit. Joining me now is the book's author, award-winning journalist, Christiane Klein. And Christiane, I have to say, I'm so impressed that you already have a book out when we're only just a few weeks into this. Uh, but do you think the pandemic is having a bigger impact or a more significant impact on our kids than we realize? Absolutely. One of the reasons why I wrote this book is our two-year-old little girl started saying that her doll was sick and it came out of nowhere. And I've heard this from so many parents now, three-year-olds who are saying, when the virus leaves, do I get to go back to the zoo? When the virus leaves, do I get to go visit grandma and grandpa or go back to school or see my friends? So kids are grieving too, and as parents, we're so used to having all the answers for this and using tools like children's books in order to explain complex issues, and there just was not a book for this. It was too soon. Right, and, and nothing that any of us were prepared for or even anticipated. So what is the most important thing you want families to take away from reading your book with their kids? 
Absolutely. So parents are using this as a tool to open the conversation with their kids, and kids are projecting their own experiences onto the story of Anna. So in the story, Anna goes through all the things that kids are going through right now. She's scared. She's sad. She's mad. She's lonely. She's bored. She's confused about what's going on. And so we took those tools and then went to that next step. I enlisted the help of my mother, who's a marriage and family therapist who specializes in children and trauma. So she helped me weave these therapeutic tools throughout the book and then end with a message of hope and resilience and empowerment. So at the end of the story, the germ goes away, but with everything that the kids and the parents have learned throughout the story, they know that if it ever comes back, that they'll be able to get through it again together. And that was so important to us to be able to have that message because we don't know how many ways we could be having through this this time period or this last two years or three years. Uh, We also have additional resources on our website, thegermbook.com. We've got coloring book pages that are based on the book. We've got a hand-washing song that's exactly 20 seconds long so that kids and parents can play it for them and they'll be able to meet those CDC guidelines and also additional tools for parents to deal with their own anxiety and fear and to be able to help their kids. That's all at thegermbook.com. Well, Christiane, thank you so much. We certainly appreciate it. It looks like an incredible read that parents everywhere will be sharing with their kids. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. ABC News, honored winner of four Edward R. Murrow Awards. ABC News, America's number one news choice. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.